If you would please be seated and open your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Last week, we saw in the first half of this chapter how a beast, a beast rises from the sea. And this beast, as we saw last week, he is a counterfeit Christ. He is opposed to Christ. He is, in every true sense of the word, he is anti-Christ. This beast is a puppet of Satan and for Satan. He receives his power and authority, as we're told in the text. He receives his power and authority from the dragon. This beast is described as a prominent world leader. uh, And his mouth, it just runs wild. As we saw last week, his mouth just speaks horrible things. He mocks God. He blasphemes God. He hates the people of God. He makes that known. He wages war on those who are loyal to Christ. And he insists on being worshipped. He, he demands worship that all would honor him and would recognize him. And yet as much as we saw this last week and how the first part of chapter 13, it emphasizes, yes, the power and the popularity and the, the initial success of this beast. It also emphasizes, this chapter does, the victory of God and his people. The victory of God and his people. So even while Satan and his puppet are doing their worst, God rules. God allows. And, and, and we'll see, we saw it in the text last week. We'll see it again in the text. That word allows. God allows this beast to operate for a time. God allows Satan to carry out his desires for a time. But God's people are not deceived. God's people are preserved and protected. Uh, they do not worship the beast. And even while many believers may die for their faith in Christ, even while many believers may die for their love for Christ, they are not defeated. They are not destroyed. We are pictured, as we'll see in the text, as ruling and reigning and living forever with Christ. And so this is why the last sentence of verse 10 reads like this. And hopefully you remember this from last week. We read, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here is a call for the endurance and for the faith of the saints. So if you are a saint, if you are a Christian, one who is in Christ, this text is for you. To encourage you, to inspire you, to call you up to continued faith and confidence in Christ. To call you up to ongoing endurance, even in the face of really hard things like trials and persecution. This text is here to call you up to love the God who knows you, to love the God who loves you and who gives you his word to guide you. So we see this is a needed chapter. This is not optional. This is not extra. This is not throwaway. It is important. It is so important. Why? Well, please note it on your outline. Well, God wants us to understand the big picture concerning what will happen in the future. He also desires for us to be discerning today to be on guard against error today, to be rooted and firmly established in truth today, to be steadfast in our love for Christ, you guessed it, today, today. And what we read here in the second half of chapter 13, it continues the call for faith. It continues the call for endurance. And it does so 
by exposing further the strategy of Satan. It calls us to faith and endurance by unmasking before us the dangers of idolatry. It calls us to faith and endurance by reminding us of our constant need for wisdom, for God's wisdom, for discernment in our lives. And so if you're in chapter 13, we're going to do kind of what we did last week. We're going to jump ahead to the end of the text. So jump down to verse 18 where we read this. This is how the text ends. Again, we're looking at the end from the beginning. Verse 18 reads like this. This calls for wisdom. (laughs) Yes, it does. Yes, it, you might even write that down. Yes, it does. This calls for wisdom. This whole chapter highlights our need for discernment and wisdom. Now read on in the verse. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man and his number is six, six, six. That's where we're heading this morning. To that most famous verse that includes that intimidating number of 666. And yet I want to remind you again that this verse begins by saying what? By saying that we need wisdom. That we need, this calls for wisdom. And it does. And sadly, many people, even well-intentioned and well-meaning people, have done some rather strange things with this verse. Some confusing things. Unhelpful things. I would even say fear-producing things that are that is not appropriate. It's not appropriate. And so to avoid falling into that trap, we should first of all do what we've done, that is to confess our need for God's wisdom, to confess our need for God's help. And as we come to this text this morning, we want to ask the kinds of questions that we have been asking of the book of Revelation throughout our entire study. Questions like, How does this passage lead us to worship? How does this passage lead us and inspire us to a greater love for God, a greater appreciation for Him, for His grace, for His love, for His Word? How do these verses, in a helpful way, expose the corruption and the deceit of Satan and his influence in the world? How does this text help prepare us to be ready, to fight against idolatry that tempts us every day? How does this passage encourage us to be awake, to be eager? I would even say joyfully eager to stand for Christ as his ambassador in the times in which we live. So with those kinds of questions in mind, let's go back. Look at verse 11. Here's how our section for this morning begins. Verse 11, John writes, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, I know what you're thinking. Not another one. Like, didn't we we just see a beast last week? Now there's another one? Yes, there is. John sees beast number one. We talked about that last week, and now... There is a, there's another beast. Please note it on your outline. This is important. This second beast, as it is described here, it has two horns. It looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. It looks innocent and harmless, but gives voice to the very lies and deceptions of hell. Now, when John writes, 
Then I saw another beast. Okay, in the Greek, another beast is alas therion. That's what John says. I saw alas therion. That means another beast of the same kind. Another beast similar to the, to the first beast. It's a different beast, but it's similar. It's of the same nature as the first beast. So this tells us then that we should not expect good things from this second beast. We should not expect him to love Jesus and to love God's people. We should not expect him to be a beacon of truth and light to the world. We should not expect him to manifest the fruit of the Spirit as described in Galatians 5. We should not expect him to be a champion of sparkies learning all of their Awana verses. We should, we should not expect him to be a small group leader who just wants to be helpful and see that people are doers of the word and not just hearers. No, He is another beast of the same kind as the first. He is corrupt. He is deceitful. He is vile. And while the first beast had ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns, which means that he exercises vast political power and authority, the second beast has only two horns and he looks like a lamb. He's not a kingly political leader. No, he wields a different kind of influence. He pursues a different path of corruption than the first beast. And again, this second beast is said to be like a lamb. Now, who would ever be afraid of a lamb? Who would ever be suspicious of a lamb? Well, if your lamb speaks like a dragon... If your lamb mimics and imitates the very lies of Satan, yes, you should be suspicious. You should be on guard. And remember that while the first beast was seen rising out of the sea, this first, the second beast rather, it arises out of the earth. So again, we're talking about two different beasts, and yet the point is they come from where? They come from below. (laughs) They don't come down from heaven, as light and truth, they come from below, from what is corrupt and depraved and wicked. But what exactly does this second beast do? How does it operate? How does it work in harmony with the first beast and in harmony with the dragon? Well, look at verse 12. We read, It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. Please note it on your outline, number two. This second beast is a worship leader, but he is the worst kind of worship leader, all right? Way, this is the worst worship leader that the world perhaps has ever seen, okay? He utilizes the power and the authority of Satan to demand and to coerce idolatry. That's what he does. This second beast functions as a cheerleader. He functions as a prophet. He functions as a well-spoken, winsome, attractive spokesman who very convincingly calls for people to worship the beast, who calls for people to worship this counterfeit Christ. And in a sense... This should not surprise us that this kind of deception is pictured here because Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 7:15, saying, 
Beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. All right, this second beast, he is that, right? He looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon, and he very convincingly demands idolatry. Please note this on your outline as we consider the work and the mission of this second beast. We see that he functions like a false, counterfeit, diabolical even, Holy Spirit, right? He's a false spirit. He is a false prophet. He is like a anti-Holy Spirit. Because remember, the Holy Spirit draws people to Christ. The Holy Spirit focuses the attention on Christ that people may know Him and behold Him and consider the glories of His life and death and, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit puts the spotlight on Christ. He opens eyes. He gives life that we may know and love Christ who is Savior and Lord. Jesus explained the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John fifteen twenty six this way, saying, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... He will bear witness about me. He will, he will speak of me. He will testify of me. He will bear witness of me. And then just a few verses later, Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit. He says, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit, He bears witness of Christ. He glorifies Christ. He empowers God's people to live as worshiping ambassadors for Christ. That others may know Him, and this is so good, it is so wonderful, and yet this second beast... He is an anti-Holy Spirit to try and promote worship and allegiance and devotion to Satan and to Satan's false king. And it's important to see at the end of verse 12 that there's another reference made to something that we talked just a little bit about last week in verse 3. At the end of verse 12, we read this. Its inhabitants, meaning the inhabitants of the earth, worship the first beast. And then we see this whose mortal wound was healed. This will come up again in just a few verses later where we see that one of the selling points, if I can say it that way, one of the selling points that the second beast uses to promote and to inspire worship of this first beast is some kind of miraculous healing, some kind of miraculous recovery or resurrection that this first beast has supposedly uh, experienced. It goes like this. Worship the beast. Look at him. He's conquered death. Worship the beast. He's truly an overcomer. He's an overcomer that we can see with our eyes, that we can behold in the flesh. Worship the beast. Nothing can stop him, not even death. Worship the beast. He can unlock life and power for you. He did it for himself. He can do it for you too. Of course, it's lies. It's a, it's a bunch of hot garbage. Because the second beast, he is not a truth teller. He is a master deceiver. He is a master deceiver. But boy, does he look impressive. And he sounds impressive. He can even do miracles. Supposedly. 
do miracles, to validate his claims. Look at verses 13 and 14. Here in Revelation 13, we read it, referring to the second beast. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them, here's the message, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Please note it on your outline. Here we are reminded, and brothers and sisters, boy, do we need to be reminded of this. Please note this on your outline. We need to be reminded, not all that glitters is gold. Impressive signs, miracles do not create truth. They cannot redefine and undo the word of God. They cannot redefine what is good and right and beautiful. We, we as followers of Christ, we must continually look to God and to his word to have true wisdom and true discernment and true understanding. Remember, remember from the very beginning God warned his people about following someone and trusting someone and listening to someone simply because they can do an impressive sign. They can do a miracle that that to our eyes seems to be a, a glorious work. All the way back in Deuteronomy 13, God warned his people saying, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. God tells His people, You know me! I have revealed myself to you. I have disclosed myself. I have made myself known to you. Do not be deceived. Even by someone who can supposedly do glorious signs and wonders and miracles, do not listen to them. Walk with me. Love me. Know me. Listen to my word. Hold fast to me. The Apostle Paul would later say it this way in Galatians 1. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This second beast, oh, he seems so powerful. He can do miracles, but that alone does not make him a credible authority 
does not make him someone you should listen to. This second beast, we're told in the text, he even called down fire from heaven like Elijah did, like the two godly witnesses that we read about back in chapter 11. But again, that doesn't mean all by itself that he should be trusted or believed. He is, in fact, not credible. He is to be rejected, denied, refused, and disregarded. Why? Because he opposes the very fundamental truth of God. He opposes the glorious nature of God, that God alone is to be worshipped. That God alone deserves your fear and your love and your respect and, and, and your honor. And the second beast preaches a message contrary to that. This second beast is a false prophet. He is perhaps the best or worst false prophet, however you define it. And remember, again, Jesus warned his disciples about deceptions like this. He did. Jesus warned his disciples about dangerous times like these, saying, quote, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased... The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Please note this on your outline. This second beast is specifically called the false prophet in chapter 16, verse 13, in chapter 19, verse 20, and in chapter 20, verse 10. So the reason why I bring this up, this isn't the last that we're going to see of him. Okay, we're going to talk about him again. We're going to look at him again in the coming weeks and months. But the point is this, and please note this on your outline. He pushes his horrible idolatry by pushing and preaching this first beast's miraculous recovery and resurrection and by commanding an image of the beast to be made and worshipped. And of course, what is so strange about this, what is so ironic about this, is that the true God, the living God, the great I am, the the almighty God who has existed from eternity past to, to eternity future, who never changes, who is glorious and transcendent and infinitely exalted, that true God, listen, he alone has power over life and death. And he has explicitly said, you should never try and reduce the greatness of his glory down to an image. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't take the transcendence and the glorious nature of the true God and boil it down to an image to worship. You can't even try. It is expressly forbidden. God says, don't even try to worship me in that way. You can't reduce God to an image. There is no picture. There is no statue that adequately reflects the weight of his personhood, the weight of his glory, the weight of his nature. He is transcendent. He is infinitely exalted above his creation. But the beast and the false prophet, they seek to control. They seek to manipulate people through the worship of this image. And I'll give them this. According to what we read in verse 15, this sounds like a really neat image. This sounds like a really impressive, exciting Image. Look at verse 15. We read this. And it, the second beast, was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, 
and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Please note it on your outline. The false prophet miraculously gives life. Now, literally, the Greek word here is pneuma, gives spirit. He gives a spirit to this image so that it can speak and it can call for the death of anyone who refuses to worship it. And that's, that is messed up. That's like a weird demonic Teddy Ruxpin. Remember those Teddy Ruxpin things? Put the cassette in and it's talking, right? That is messed up. That when this image speaks, when this statue speaks, what does it do? It calls for death. It speaks death. It commands death. Death for anyone who will not worship the beast and worship the image. And according to this talking image, listen, you're either for the beast or you should die. That's it. Those are the only two options. Either you will bow down and you will be an idolater or you should die. You can either be loyal to the true God or you can be loyal to the beast and to his image. And while this passage paints, I think, a very sobering picture of what is to come, of persecution that believers will one day face, there's also a sense in which these very same spiritual realities are already at play today and are already at work right now. We are, if we're being honest, we are continually confronted with the question of who and what we will worship. Moment by moment, we must choose to love God or to serve idols. And brothers and sisters, those are the only two options. You will know And you will love God and you will walk with him and serve him and hold fast to him or you will be an idolater. Those are the two options. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And the Apostle John, in the very final sentence of that little letter that we call First John, writes this warning, this command. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So yes, this idol, this image described in Revelation 13, it sounds and seems to be very scary and very intimidating. It calls for death. It speaks death. And yet, what I find equally scary is the idol of lust and sinful desire That meets me every day. This idol tells me to leave Christ, to walk away from him, and to worship some cheap experience and pleasure. What I find scary is the idol of greed and jealousy that confronts me to my face and tells me that Jesus has let me down, that Jesus has not been good, He has not been faithful. But if only I had a little more money. If only I had a better car, better house, better friends. Oh, then I would have life. 
Then I would have joy and contentment. What I find scary is the idol of self, the idol of my own pride that tells me every day that I should be king, that my feelings and my desires, whatever they are, that they should rule in my life, that they should be Lord and God. That is scary. That is scary. That's a lie. Those idols lie to me. So here's the point that I'm trying to make this morning. You know the idol that requires your attention today is the idol that lies to you today. The idol that confronts you today. The, The idol that entices you to leave Christ and to disobey Him and to worship something else. And listen, don't tell me that someday in the future, oh, you'll be on guard against this idol when you won't deal with the idolatry in your life right now. What makes you think, what makes you think that someday in the future, you'll be loyal to Christ, you'll, you don't love Him today, you're not loyal to Him today, oh, but someday you wouldn't fall for that talking image. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. You listen to idolatry. You entertain it in your heart and in your mind. Don't think so highly of yourself. Humble yourself before God and confess your need for Him now, today. The question is, what is it that seeks to separate you and Christ? Whatever that is, you put it to death. You put it to death. Because in Christ, there is life. There is joy. There is peace. There are all the promises of God that find their yes and amen in Him. Now, an obvious question that, at least I I think it's an obvious question. I hope you do too. Um, An obvious question that I think rises from the text is, well, how does he do it? How does this false prophet make this image speak? That sounds impressive. That's Seems exciting and entertaining. How does he do it? Well, I think the details are found in the details of the text in verse 15 where we read that he, it, was allowed to give breath to the image. As I said earlier, this word translated as breath is the Greek word pneuma. And it's often translated, usually translated, as wind or spirit. I think what we see here is that this false prophet, he commissions and he uses, if you will, an unclean spirit, a demon, to speak and to communicate in and through this image. This false prophet, he does not actually create life. He cannot. Only God can create life. Only God can do that. But he can utilize a demon. He can utilize some unclean spirit to help deceive people into worshiping this idol and to ensure that people do what they're told, to ensure that people worship the beast and worship the image. We see in verses 16 and 17 that this false prophet helps to enact a really awful policy where there are severe financial penalties to anyone who refuses to worship. Look at verses 16 and 17. We read this. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. We see people being marked, people being marked 
like a prisoner. People being marked like a slave. Noted on your outline, receiving this mark testifies to one's allegiance and submission to the beast. Now, I don't need to tell you that much ink has been spilled and many trees have died to make books that supposedly explain all of the details of this mark. And you are free to read and to research all those various books and theories. But I will tell you, no one knows exactly what this mark will be or what form exactly this mark will take. But this morning, what I want to try and do in our time together is I want to get at the heart of what is being described here. What we see here in the text is that this mark is fundamentally about an allegiance to something other than Christ. It is about an allegiance not to Christ, but to this beast. This mark is about a purposeful submission to the beast's rulership, to his kingdom. This mark is meant to identify those who indeed belong to the beast, those who worship him. This mark is the mark of friendship and strength with the right hand. With the right hand, friendship and strength to the beast. This is the mark of influence and control with the mark on the forehead which engages the mind. It is a way to accept and to take the beast's name, showing your identification with him. Now I say all that to say this, and I hope and pray that this is relatively clear from the text. Listen, receiving this mark will not be an accident. It will not be a simple mistake. It won't be like this. Oh, I thought I was signing up for a Costco membership, but instead I got the mark of the beast. Whoops. No, no, it won't be that. Listen, as we look at the text, those who take the mark of the beast know that they are taking the mark of the beast. They know what they are doing. They know that they are choosing economic prosperity by means of idolatry. Again, we see examples of things similar to this throughout redemptive history. We do. We do. If you think that this is something unprecedented, something that that the church has never faced, you're wrong. You're wrong. Maybe not on such a scale as this, but the early church heard this. Burn incense to Caesar. Say that Caesar is Lord. Say it. Say that Caesar is Lord. Otherwise, you cannot be a good Roman citizen. You cannot enjoy the rights and the privileges of of being a part of the trade guilds and our economic system, you should be executed if you won't say Caesar is Lord. You're messing up the system. You're bringing down curses from the gods. Shame on you. Say that Caesar is Lord. Do you remember the huge statue, the huge image that King Nebuchadnezzar made in Daniel chapter 3? Do you remember his command to worship the image? He proclaimed, quote, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, uh, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And if you didn't do it, if you didn't worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, where would you go? 
fiery furnace. That's where you belong. This, this, this is where you deserve to go to the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar, I'll tell you, he was a man ahead of his time. He was trying to do Revelation 13 before Revelation 13 was cool. He was, he was trying to promote himself as God, as an object of worship. The point is this. <clears throat> We've seen this kind of pressure before. We've seen this kind of demand to idolatry before. Again, not on a scale like what is portrayed here in Revelation 13, but believers have oftentimes been confronted with the question and the choice of whose name will you live for? Whose name will you live for? Whose name will you take? Where will your identity be found? In Christ or in some false god? Believers will yet again be confronted by the choice. Food or faithfulness? Economic prosperity or spiritual fidelity to God? Financial security for a couple years or eternal security with Christ and glory forever? And when we consider sobering verses like this, when we, and we should, let me, we should do this we should, Jesus told us to count the cost of following him. He did. He told you to count the cost of following him. When we count the cost, when we consider texts like this, we should remember what Jesus said to Satan in Matthew 4 when Satan tempted Jesus to go after food, to go after bread, to change stones into bread so that Jesus could feed the flesh and so that physically he could satisfy himself. Do you remember what Jesus said to Satan in that moment of temptation? He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan you don't hold the power of life and joy and peace. Only God does. Satan, you are wrong to think that life is found in food and bread and economic prosperity where I can sell and buy things. It's not found there. It's found in God. Satan, the people of God should not yield to you for even one moment because God knows how to save His children. God knows how to preserve His people. God knows how to lead His children into joy and eternal life with Him. So the beast can keep His name. The beast can keep His mark. The beast can keep His money. Because in Christ, if you are in Christ, you have something infinitely greater incalculably greater. I wish I could say that word. We, you, if you are in Christ, you have been sealed and empowered by God Himself, by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit given to you. Paul explained it like this in Ephesians 1.13. Paul writes, In Him, meaning in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it 
to the praise of His glory. I'll tell you, that is power. That is a ceiling that we need. That is God at work in His people. Once again, we do see the truth of 1 John 4.4 on full display, which says this, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Why? For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So, with that in mind, let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. We can't do that. Because we got to, I know, we got to get to verse 18 and the whole 666 number thing. So let's do it. Let's, let's, let's talk about it. After talking about receiving this mark of the beast, this, this mark that the prophet will demand that people get, look at what John writes in verse 18. He says, this calls for wisdom. Yes, it does. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Okay, please note it on your outline. Brothers and sisters, as near as I can tell, this number is not so much intended to reveal a specific name or a personal identity. Now, stop there for a moment. I know I'm interrupting my own point, but just let me for a moment, okay? And admittedly, admittedly, I'm not really a math guy. So that might be biasing my interpretation of this text, but I don't think so. I don't think the point of this text and this verse is to encourage you to walk away from this verse and then do a bunch of math games, whereby you look at the names of a bunch of prominent political world leaders and you translate their name from whatever language you're in into Greek and then you assign the appropriate number value to each letter and you do the math, you add, subtract, you minus until you come up with the number 666 and thereby you begin to create your list of potential antichrist candidates. I don't think that's what we're being told to do here, okay? I think when it says calculate the number... He's saying, do the math, add it up. This is similar to what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, where he said, reckon yourselves to be alive to Christ and dead to sin. He's not actually encouraging a specific math equation. He's telling you, add it up, do the math, see the big picture, understand who God is and what he is doing, and see that you are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Okay, now let me continue my point. This number is not so much intended to reveal a specific name or a personal identity, but to unveil the wretched condition and the looming failure and the insufficiency of this ridiculous first beast who is Antichrist, who opposes Christ, who demands that people worship him. See, listen, the beast, he is triple six. He is 6666 being the number of man. Remember, seven is the number of wholeness, the number of completion, the number of perfection. That is not the beast. He is not 777. He is 666, meaning he is incomplete, depraved man. He is incomplete, depraved man. He is incomplete, depraved man to the max, to the extreme condition. God is holy, holy, holy. This beast 
is 666. That is his true identity. That is perhaps the most important thing to know about him. And indeed, as John writes, this does call for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Now, you might hear that and say, but why? Why does this call for wisdom? Why does this require understanding? Why do we have to do any thinking to calculate and to arrive at the right conclusion here? Answer, because not everybody does. Not everybody arrives at the right answer. Not everyone understands this. Not everyone will do the math and will come up with the proper conclusion. Many will look at the beast and say, that is power, that is might, that is glory, that is wisdom. Many will look at the work of Satan and they will say, That is what I've been waiting for. That is what I need in my life. That is what I need for me. Many will admire Satan's puppet and want to be just like him. But brothers and sisters, everything in the text warns us and pleads with us to understand that he is not the answer. He is in fact a black hole, a poison apple, an empty well. He is lacking. He is incomplete. He will lead all of his followers right off a cliff to their death. And this is why his name, his number, his basic identity and nature is 666. Depraved, incomplete, insufficient, ultimately incompetent man. Idolater. Sinner, one who loves lawlessness and wickedness. So, in light of that gloomy number, in light of that horrific, sad conclusion, what should we do? Where is hope found? Look at the very next verse. We're just going to go a couple words into chapter 14. And this is so good. This is my favorite part. I've been waiting all morning to get here. Look at verse 1. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. That's it. That's the answer. That's everything that the text has been... Driving to, to the Lamb, not to the dragon, not to the first beast, not to the second beast. Look to the Lamb. Trust the Lamb who is standing on Mount Zion. You say, what does that mean? I have no idea. We'll figure it out next week. But look to the Lamb. Look to the Lamb who lives. Look to the Lamb who stands in victory. Look to the Lamb who saves sinners. Look to the Lamb who welcomes all to come to Him. Look to the Lamb who gives life, who seals with the Spirit of God, who gives us a new identity that is rooted in Him. This is where life and joy and hope is found. Kill your idols and look to the Lamb. And... Be sure to come back next week as we consider, how do we do that? What what does it mean to look to the Lamb? Look to the Lamb where? Look to the Lamb how? What does any of this mean? That's what the first part of chapter 14 is all about. Look to the Lamb. Let's pray. Gracious Father, again, we confess our need for you. 
our need for your spirit and your wisdom and your word to be at work in us. God, thank you that you have not left us in the dark. Thank you that you have shown us and revealed to us what is yet to come and the ultimate victory of Christ. And God, may we be warned in our hearts and in our minds against any idol, anything that would distract us and tempt us to walk away from Christ. God, as, as we stand and sit here this morning, you see us. You see into our hearts and minds. You know where those temptations are and when those, where those idols are. You see better than we do. God, we pray that you would make that known to us, that you would reveal that to us, so that we may then in joy and in gladness cast aside those idols and look to Christ and love him and follow him. God, we pray that you would protect us, that you would guide us and, and, and guard us in these dark times, that we would be people who truly know what it means to live for your glory, to speak what is true, to be an ambassador for Christ, and one that reflects the character of Christ, one that is gracious and strong in truth and calls people to what is right, calls people to life in the gospel. Lord, do this for your glory. Do it for our good. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.